Welcome back to the channel, guys. I am joined again by Scott Walner. I had a lovely first conversation with Scott, Scott, which I hope you will have checked out um, because I think it will be important to watch that one in order to watch this one. But if not, it's all good because <laughs> we'll go on a lot of tangents and we'll go everywhere and nowhere. So going to have some fun. Before we started, Scott uh, read out some of his notes to me and they seemed extremely exciting. So why don't you lead us off? All right. Yeah, I think we've already passed back a few notes. And um, this is uh, this is a problem that I have and people that I talk to or people that I know um, sort of have to help me refine which notes we're going to go from because I have far too many notes and um, maybe don't go deep enough into all of them. But uh, yeah, for us today, Lucas, I had uh, deep triads is something that I thought we could get interested in. And then also a sort of phrase that at this point is just meaningful for me because nobody else really knows about it is these steep fences, um, in intellectual steep fences. So take, I guess, take your pick. It's 50. I'll take the what? second one. Okay. Second one first. Okay. So this is, a <clears throat> this is just a way that I think about essentially navigating paradoxes or questions in general, I guess. Um, so the first thing I guess to point out is that offense divides two things. It's mm -hmm. a sort of boundary between two things. And if you think about the, the landscape on either side of the fence, now you can sort of map that quite easily onto there's a sort of landscape of possibility or potential on one side and a landscape of possibility and potential on the other side. So it's just a sort of visual um, or imaginal, you know, analogy for us to sort of um, have for ourselves. And um, so you could sort of apply this to any type of decision or choice that you might need to make if you want to simplify it down to a sort of a dichotomy, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not implying that all decisions or all thinking or all sort of reasoning or intellect um, should be boiled down to a dichotomy, but I think it's often very possible for us to do that. And there is some usefulness in that, except that it comes with the sort of uh, reality of the trap that you put yourself in when you yeah. dichotomize. Yeah. That makes sense so far? No, for sure. I mean, frameworks are always like, they're useful and they're almost necessary, I'd say. And you're going to lose a bit because it's not exactly reality, but that's great. Like, please, I want to hear more. Yeah. So um, I, I totally agree. There's a sort of, of um, and I think this is maybe something that um, is very deep in the way that thinking beings um, experience their world is this sort of necessity to simplify and dichotomize. Even though we accept that it's sort of pulled back, it's abstracted, it's too simple for what is actually out there um, most of the time. And so, yeah, I just like to think about um, these different paradoxes. Um, some, some paradoxes are fences that are so steep and tall that it requires a ton of work 
in order to get from one side to the other. So now we can start to essentially quantify how um, difficult a paradox or a question is by visualizing fences that are really tall or really short. So for example, a simple arbitrary decision like, um, do I want chocolate or vanilla ice cream for my dessert? That's a really short fence that you can just easily step over, right? Um, to get from one side to the other, mm -hmm. sort of rationalize it or um, even put your belief in one side or the other of what you want or, or what you think is right is very easy. But there are other deep paradoxes, um, you know, going all the way to the mind-body problem and, yeah. you know, things like Zeno's paradox or the Gödel, you know, paradoxes. Um, these things require a lot of effort to change sides. And the reason that I like the fence imagery is we have this phrase, this colloquial phrase of sitting on the fence about mm -hmm. something. Yep. Have you heard that? that yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, it means like you're indecisive. You have not chosen one side or the other. And so that's where this really all started for me was that I feel like a person that I like to find that privileged um, perspective of sitting on the fence. And, uh, and so I realized that, hey, in order to really sit on the fence, sometimes it's very easy to get there. And sometimes it requires a lot of work. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's just an interesting, fun way to think That's about awesome. problems. And um, also something that I try to do, which is, again, how do you find yourself sitting on the fence? Because that is a privileged sort of perspective. Um, when okay. you're on one side of a steep fence, you don't see the other side, right? You, you're full, you're in the environment, you're in the space of one particular choice and not the other. Um and the only way to get to the other side is to input a lot of work in order to get up and back down to the other yeah. side. Or that, maybe maybe there's something like intellectual gates that we can build and engineer, which allows you direct access right through the oh, fence. Oh, okay, okay. I like I'm really like starting to understand, but I like to get a bit more examples. So I want to first get an example for you of a fence that was very steep, but that you ended up climbing. And then afterwards we can uh, get the cheat codes. Oh, okay. <laughs> a very steep fence. That you ended up sitting on. Well, and here's, here's the other thing. I, I will try to answer that question. It's that um, part of where this came up for me was that I was realizing a lot of the really steep fences it required that same amount of work for me to get back up there again mm -hmm. each time. Yeah. Yeah. I recognize so, that. So for me, my background, a lot of the sticking points for me are sort of um, computational and trying to wrap my head around how computation maps onto the real world. And so things like the concept of zero and infinity um, and putting putting myself firmly in one camp or the other um, and feeling really confident about what zero means and what it doesn't in terms of nature, I would say that's a very steep fence. And each time it sort of requires me to climb up there um, in order to see both sides in an honest way. Um, okay, so. that's great. 
what about the the intellectual doors <laughs> what was it was oh, that yeah, what you exactly. said well right i think that that's um i lost your oh, video here yeah, yeah you can that. keep talking i'll fix it um well right i was thinking to myself is there a way to get to the other side that doesn't require climbing over and i just thought of the sort of very human um you know activity of engineering to solve problems and um a gate is something that we that happens in fences we use gates yeah right we use our fences to um sort of designate a particular area that we want to close off or create a boundary around and uh but sometimes we want access to what's inside and outside and so we use gates yeah. um we don't require ourselves to you know, climb over the fence every single time and so maybe uh an intellectual gate in a in a steep fence is something that you engineer for yourself over time it's sort of a an intuition pump or maybe even a mantra or maybe again a little analogy a little visual analogy or um some sort of you know th thought experiment right a little sort of intellectual game or routine for yourself yeah. that allows you to go there quicker yeah i understand i think you can also lay out the map for yourself once you've because you're talking about also fences you've climbed before mm -hmm. so i really like this concept of uh, teaching yourself you know <laughs> like leaving little trails for yourself to figure it out again because it's always for me it's so i don't know it's kind of annoying when you've done so much work and it's like, oh, wait, I actually have to go all the way back up. But there's really ways. Like I do that with with notes on books all the time. But sometimes I make so few notes that I look at them and I'm like, what, 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 what did I even write here? Like, I don't know. I don't even remember, even with recent ones. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any, um, you asked me, like, if there's any steep fences that I've been on, you're just encountering this little, you know, thought game. Um, are there any things that you sort of have to constantly like work towards to keep both positions in mind. That's like that position uh, sitting on the fence. You have both positions in view. Is there anything that you I don't know of? if it's applicable, but I don't know if you know, but I think about Bitcoin a lot. Okay. And that's like, it may sound kind of surface level to some people, but it goes pretty deep. And in order yes. for me to, yeah, and I like I was on Karen's channel speaking about it, and I had to explain it to her, and I didn't, I didn't expect her to ask me the fundamentals, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a technical guy at all, so I had to like think about it, and I had a lot of trouble explaining it, even though I think conceptually I have it kind of understood in my head, and then I realized like, yeah, well, I have to go, I have to go back up. So then I went back and I spent a lot of time like understanding the fundamentals again. So I don't know, you correct me if it doesn't apply the analogy of the, of the fence, okay. but, but I totally think that applies. I think it could be, like I said, fences can be short or very tall, right. And just a decision itself. It almost seems applicable to me on this fundamental sort of, again, a dichotomizing of this and not that of any decision is sort of implying of this and not that even if it's slightly complex. Yeah. I think with my, maybe my uh, example doesn't apply as much because the decision is not really as much there mm. as it is with you, because you mentioned the zero and the infinity. And I don't know, with Bitcoin, I don't really have that, that 
thing to choose from. But I can understand the intellectual challenge of reintegrating the <laughs> yes. the knowledge I used to have. But I don't know if I have a fence example, a really tall one at least. Mm. Maybe you know a better better than the fences. Again, the fences is um I'm aware of the simplification of dichotomizing, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas a stronger analogy, which is more complete, might just be something like climbing a mountain, yeah. right? Where you climb the mountain and you're you're privy to the perspective and the views that you gain by gaining an elevation or or whatever it might be. Um, and there are certain processes that you go through to get up to that perspective and sort of back down on the ground level where you have to, again, you have to put your foot on the ground somewhere, right? You have to step on one side of the line um, or one side of the fence. And maybe on the mountain, it's more complex is that there's different yeah. you know, regions or, um, well, even with a mountain, it's like um, your view of the top is different um, based on where you're standing at the bottom. It's, yeah. it's almost obvious, right? If I'm standing on the north side of the mountain, looking up at the summit, it's a different view than uh, when I stand on the south side and I look at the same summit, <laughs> right? And yeah, so yeah, no, I feel you. But when you're on the top, you've also you've known the the bottom perspective. Exactly. Which, that's such a cool thing about the analogy. I think that works really well. Yeah, and we could go. You could go. I don't, I'm not the first to do this, right? This is the sort of the cyclical journey of, you know, you could think of the hero's journey, like a mountain climb, right? Yeah. Where yeah. you leave where you're at on the ground and you go out and come back, right? There's many thinkers and, um, uh, you know, people who have contemplated the nature of our psyche, um, who think of things in these sort of ascent, descent, right? Or, go away and return yeah start and come back to the um come back to the starting place it reminds me uh, of the cave or the exactly exactly that's what an amazing drawn out story about that sort of process right where my fence one is like the simplest um, yeah but the fence i feel like is it not different yours though because you have the two sides uh yeah In a sense? I guess so i guess so i could think of like inside the cave and outside the cave as yeah. two perspectives to hold in that story. But there's also, there's that sort of complex, you know, uh, scenery within Plato's cave that yeah. makes it so much more rich, you know, the people making the shadows and the chains and the it's uh yeah, it's wild. Yeah. I completely read over it the first time I read it because I made this mission for myself when I was 19 to just read all of Plato. And so here I went like speed reading it. And my brother was like, Oh, did you learn about the cave? And I was like, well, what are you talking about? He's like, the, the, the cave. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah, I must have read over it. And it's like, wow, the ignorance is just on a different level. Yeah, I had an interesting thought about Plato's cave once. Um, well, I have I've recorded this somewhere else. Remember how I told you about little sketches that I've done that I. Oh, I remember very well. Yeah. Put in a pile. Um, yeah. I also have a giant pile of. Um, recorded myself talking just to, to talking to myself you know just letting it letting everything go doing my own podcast with nobody me questioning myself yeah um and i i went on a long rant about imagining the plot the process plato went through to eventually write down plato's cave oh wow um, well because i mean any story 
right? He didn't have the story complete and then say, okay, now I'm going to write it down word for word. There was some sort of development that must have happened, right, in creating all of those different pieces and weaving them together and weaving together a narrative, but also a diagram. You know, that's what is very interesting to me about Plato's Cave is that it also includes a sort of technical diagram in a certain sense. And um, so, yeah, what did, how did that come to be? I thought was so interesting. And then I realized, hmm, I wonder maybe if I understood Plato better and if anyone is like an expert in Plato and they know that something else he wrote sort of indicates this, but I always wondered, did he have the realization that his allegory was written <laughs> from someone who was chained to the wall being himself, right? Mm -hmm. That um, he's describing these characters who are chained to the wall, looking at the shadows on the wall and in place of human beings, right? Him yeah. being one and <laughs> him being one of those people that in that predicament still wrote the allegory of the cave, yeah, right? So it's... Uh, it's interesting. I wonder, you know, what does a story or what does an allegory look like from, uh, you know, the perspective of being outside the cave or something? Um, but. Matt, I find it so, I just think about this idea of like the imaginal process that you speak about of, mm -hmm. of these, these, these writers. And I almost forget that they were even like human. You know? <laughs> yes. So I would really want you to actually explicate a bit more about this process because what what do you think it was actually like because you spoke about it to yourself <laughs> i'd love to hear a bit more um, i i i question it i think about just myths in general how did these stories come to be yeah um the origin of myths is very interesting to think about um especially when it's something that seems to have occurred through many people over a long period of time. So, yeah, I wonder, I, I think about, there's some, there's some intuition and then there's some intellect. There's some, yeah. some of the ingredients are sort of rationalized and problem solving and sort of picking up on pattern, sort of like pattern recognition mm -hmm. in the happenings of their experience. And then some of it must be pushing beyond that because the stories in the myth definitely are pulled away from direct experience to a certain degree. If not just because they're written down, there's also this deep, deep idea of maybe this is a really steep fence What's the difference between an idea that's written down and an idea that's not written down? Written down, not written down. I think there's a fundamental difference when something is finally recorded. Yeah, because you're saying written, so also like spoken out, spoken into existence. Yeah, yeah. Some symbolic representation. Yeah. But I think it's... Also, yeah. Go ahead. No, just thinking about it because... I know that a lot of people conceptualize ideas as coming to us or in some sense, like we are receptive toward the ideas. And then once we've recorded them, in many ways, the ideas are like, yes, we made it, you know, <laughs> like we made it here. Uh, so that's, that's one way of thinking about it, but please let me know what your, what your thoughts are. No, I, I think, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just 
distinguishing at least two categories, yeah. which is like intellectual, um, intellect-y and intellect where you're sort of thinking it. Um, and then the intuition, which seems beyond what you already know or what you already have an intelligence for or, or an intellect for, or you already have some established thought or idea about intuition is this sort of uh, impulse tugging at you, you know, to go beyond that a little bit. Yeah. Or maybe instead of going beyond, it's going a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. um, I think right they both work. The, exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> like the deep. Okay. Because my, my, my girlfriend and I often speak about the difference between going within and like moving forward or up. Because I prefer the, well, she's, she's a yogi, so she likes to go inside. That's really her, what speaks to her. Mm -hmm. And I'm so outward focused in many ways. Like I'm thinking about my potential self, you know, the Peterson talk and all these things. But I think they point to something similar in a sense. Uh, you can conceptualize it at East versus West as well. You know, the different types of relating to transcendence. Absolutely. Um, it's reminding me of something that I just learned recently. Mm -hmm. I just heard recently, but it really fits in. And it's, it's the same idea of, um, are we reaching out or are we going inward? And so someone was talking, I could, I can send you maybe the link of the conversation. Um, it's another, YouTube, another great YouTube channel. It's led by a man named Layman Pascal. And I think his channel is called the integral or something like I that. Know, I'm, I'm subscribed actually. Is it the guy with the orange stuff? He's got he, like a Buddhist thing behind him or so. Sometimes, sometimes he, uh, he has yeah, that. I know him. Yeah. yeah. And he talks with people sometimes from uh, like, if you know the channel parallax or. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Alexander Bard and Daniel Schmachtenberger and those types of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was having a conversation with uh, people in the field of like, self self-help or just development developmental psychology um personal growth like those types of things uh even therapies um and um one of the perspectives he was trying to um highlight was the usefulness of not always having something outside reaching for that we have to run to, that we have to grab that's bigger than us or better than us or an improvement, right? Or fixing a deficit or something like that. And to do that, we think we go somewhere else out there to yep. sort of change ourselves to that that we are imagining, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a future sort of better state of myself, right? Or I've rid myself of this deficit that I, that I have, right? Yeah. I think that probably works for some people in some cases for some things right we have to sort yeah, of just... exactly but instead he was saying um and i really love the the sort of well i just think he's choosing a really great word to describe an alternative to that which is um you have to you have to unfold yourself oh oh i like that yeah that's excellent um, and so when you unfold these layers right then you're seeing what's deeper you know and so you're sort of seeing things for the root of the problem maybe although mm -hmm. he was also saying we shouldn't necessarily um identify it as a problem necessarily right because what we feel as a problem on one level at a deeper level is a solution right it's like yeah. 
It's yep, happening yep. in our psyche for some reason. Maybe it's protective. Maybe it's coping. Maybe it's, um, I don't know, right? But just labeling it as a problem or deficit may not be seeing it for what it originated as, which is something that was meant to be helpful or again, protective or something like that. So unfolding and sort of recognizing what it truly is um, can be a really interesting way to think. And this is my own little extension on this um, because I was very interested in origami uh, when I was a math student. Um, and when you unfold something like an origami structure, you're sort of increasing its range anyways, right? When I have something that's all folded up and compact, right? Not only do I see what's covered by unfolding it, but I actually have a bigger reach yeah. as well anyways, which is what you were trying to do when you reach out and grab for that better self. Exactly. Run to that new place. It's like you can reach that other place, not by not by running there, but by unfolding. And then you just, you are there. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. It also feels like it's less effortful in a way. It's mm -hmm. at least a more natural way to get there, you know? It's a release of sort of tension, right? There's sort of tension... Yeah that's uh being uh creased in to these folds you know i'm literally imagining like a piece of origami that gets folded over on itself and creased and smashed down and um and when you unfold that you have this sort of wider structure and uh and yeah the crease pattern is also there right and yeah. so you you see the history of um how you were folded up and compressed um it's a beautiful image. I really see it so visually, like really Good. sad. Like I wish there was like, um, I wish someday, you know, these things you're talking about will have like a visual on top of it. I don't know if you've ever heard of the after school. Uh, have you seen oh, yeah. it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd love to just, yeah, I'd love to just uh, see him do it. This is really, oh. really impressive stuff. Agreed. I wish I knew like artists. Oh, well, I do know some artists, but um artists and digital artists that I that could would want to do a project where they yeah. create some of those visualizations. Some people have such wonderful skill with that. And um, especially with computer graphics nowadays, mm. people can do really cool animations. Um, I have a couple others that I would love to see visualized in like a really like hyper realistic animation. It would be so neat. Um, yeah, have you seen the Wolfgang Smith, um, do you know the Cosmic Icon? in a documentary they did it is like really cool did you see it i did see it yeah it's dope i really like it it's really yeah. impressive it is it is that's kind of what i'm talking about is you know he had somebody really work with him uh to make that beautiful you know and when well done just like yeah so awesome i feel um like i'm so curious i mean i know we're we have a certain amount of time but like there's a lot of ideas I want to unpack. How do you feel about the fences one? Is there anything you'd love to add? Because I'm really curious about the one you mentioned at the start as well. Okay. Are you, um, anything else on steep fences? Um, no, I've also thought of just um, similarly like deep trenches. You know, it's just sort of uh, the same idea as the steep fence and it rhymes and it's just going down instead, you know? So it's like uh, yeah. in order to find like the treasure at the bottom of a deep trench, right? You have to climb down and then climb back out to get there. It's just the sort of the mirror reflection of a steep fence in a certain sense. Is there a way in which it's different? 
in which um i think it could be you could play it that way as to like the downward going into some deeper place and the steep fence going to some higher perspective if you like to sort of layer things or think of things in hierarchy where there's you at least leave open um the possibility of going down or going up um what about the decision part because on the fence you get like to go one way or the other how is that in the trench um in the trench it it could be um on one side or the other okay like a steep canyon right yeah. where you you want to travel across and that's where you could build a bridge instead of mm -hmm. a gate right so the same sort of uh intellectual hack is available where you could build a bridge yeah. um, and uh yeah so that that is there um but hmm i want to say something about the the, the fences because um you know i think every metaphor has or i don't know if you would call it a metaphor or analogy or <laughs> allegory <laughs> But they all have something that the other one doesn't have. You know, same with frameworks. Do you know if there's a way, like, do you know if there's something about the fence that has something that all the other ones don't? Hmm. Or is it is it this, the, the, the decision thing that, that pops out to you? Are you saying, like, this little analogy is more complete than another type of analogy? That's my question, basically. Yeah, is there something for me in using it that I don't get from the cave or the mountain? Hmm um i think that that's probably up to you first yeah. yeah and i don't think that mine is sort of uh better or anything maybe it's just you could you could use them interchangeably mm. um i do think the gate thing is kind of interesting yeah that's cool i, I think that's that, it actually i think that actually makes it a little bit unique where yeah. There's like, there are these shortcuts or portals or something like that, right? Like a gate kind of functions like a portal. Yeah. Um, and so maybe that's something, although th that sort of reminds me of this, like, you know, breaking through to the other side, lifting up the veil, you know, mm -hmm. those analogies are similar in terms of like this instantaneous perspective change. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe I'm just in a humble way i don't feel like it's super special um, no but i like it i mean we got maps for a reason and they're different have, for a reason yeah, and i thought of it, it would be a really fun interesting you know how um some video games today are like they're just like really open exploratory sort of like um experiences like they mm -hmm. would be very well suited for like virtual reality or something yeah. where there's not a lot of this like killing enemies or you know getting the star or whatever it's like navigating and just it's <laughs> more relaxing or or puzzle like right there's yeah. these games where you even like manipulate the environment i imagine this like video game where there's like this giant landscape and it's basically just um it's like a maze of fences of different heights and different lengths and you have to you know you're just sort of like trying to uh, get to some endpoint at the end of the map by navigating all these fences right and it it would be interesting of like which do you climb over which do you sort of travel around and try to find a corner um, i'm thinking about like a 3d maze almost where you could you would be navigating through three dimensions um, yeah so i just thought that would be fun for like a game developer to to design that where you could just navigate an environment of fences and it was a sort of puzzle to try to um get through the map um 
Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> you should you should work with one or become one. Oh my god. Let the kids learn. And then the fences are actually like intellectual challenges. <laughs> that would be cool. That would be cool. I had this like video. Um, so back when I, I grew up in the 90s, and so you know, I didn't I didn't grow up with like smartphones or like the internet really. Um, but at these places or like at the library in our neighborhood, they would have computers. And they would have like pre-programmed like computer games that most people just didn't have in their homes. And there was really like uh, educational ones where you were mm. like climbing a mountain, you're answering math problems, you're answering logic problems and you get little items and things like that. And you actually like climb a mountain and do all that sort of thing. So um, yeah, those, those seem fun. It would be, it would be cool to do like deep philosophical questions that you have to encounter in a sort of narrative, right? <laughs> or something. Yeah. I, don't I know. hope that's the future. Because I don't think we're going to get the kids off of them. So might as well <laughs> make them educational. Gosh, you have, I mean, we don't have to go there. Maybe, maybe another time. But yeah, the, the, our modern digital and technological environment is a bit crazy to um, try to navigate and also just think about and sort of analyze like, what's the point? What should we be doing? How do we, use this how does it get abused um it's it seems like such a big important topic but i i know that it's like those are long deep conversations and um yeah i mean to have with your with your spouse as well i can imagine with your children because exactly. the parents growing up right now i mean now you kind of have an idea okay these are video games i'm assuming that you're familiar with smartphones and all these things and but my, my parents growing up, they were going into it while they were raising. I think, yeah, a lot of people didn't really know what was coming. Agreed. And now I think we're only starting to get a grip on like, how do I actually deal with it myself? Mm. And then your children are a whole nother pickle, mm -hmm. let's say. But I'm seeing like a lot of parents taking the challenge head on. And like, for example, when I grew up, my parents would give us an hour of screen time um for the longest time and eventually they just gave up because they got so integrated as well digitally that was like it was almost like hypocritical to be like hey you guys can use it but i have to use it for work and everything else and all these things exactly so, yeah. it yeah. goes very deep i mean do you want to talk about it a little bit i have yeah sure many thoughts um, yeah go ahead well one thing is that this is very new we have to really realize how new this is in humanity and yet our um well our biochemistry is no different from or maybe not no different but very imperceptibly different from let's yeah. say a hundred years ago or even a thousand years ago i think oh for sure yeah um and so it's fundamentally changing our perception of uh reality um it's so here's here's a few examples and you brought up children this has now that i have children it's made it very top of my mind <laughs> you know again Imagine. like you said navigate it myself but also now be responsible for um young people who are really impressionable and developing their own habits and preferences and um you know ethics and aesthetics they're mm -hmm. developing those um one thing is they're drawn just to the physical thing for a number of reasons, in my opinion. One, 
it's the flashiest, shiniest thing in the environment always in a sort of unreal way, right? Even the screen of the cell phone or the tablet while it's off is almost like a jewel, right? Yeah. In its environment. It is a diamond, right? It is iridescent. It's a rainbow. It's, you know, and so even like my one-year-old is just drawn to the screen itself. Even if nothing's on it, or if something's on it, she doesn't know what's on it. It's just there. And it's a thing to go for in the environment. And so that urge to go and investigate or grab or be entertained by that thing starts really early just by exposure. And again, how many of us can eliminate that from our environment? It's very difficult. Yeah. Um, the second thing is young children mimic what they see in a lot of cases and adults we have the cell phone in our hand. We talk into it. Yeah. We look away from the real world and look to the screen. That's an expression of values. Our actions are an expression of our values. And when we stop looking around the world and we look at our screen, I think we're indicating that our value in that moment lies within that shiny diamond. And children learn that right away that these square rectangles are places for whatever my parents are doing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Whatever. And so they, they mimic that behavior. Um, the third thing that I've encountered is now with my almost five-year-old, She and she's very bright. I think on the good side, technology is making kids so smart. Yeah, <laughs> In for ways. sure. Their language, their ability, how many stories do they encounter? You know, they, they have these sort of more rich, like I think about a, a five-year-old a hundred years ago in, you know, whatever the Midwest of America, they don't have a bunch of stuff going on in their day all the mm -hmm. time. But like they don't yeah. have a bunch of stories and cartoons getting thrown at them, but the young people, they're receptive to all of that. And they can follow the stories. They can learn from the stories. They can learn lessons, good or bad. Um, so that's one thing, but also my my daughter, who's almost five, she's asking me multiple times now about what is real. Is that real? Mm. Is that a real place? Are those real people? Because she's encountering so many digital computer animated characters with human type voices and human type behaviors and stories. Um, and then seeing like a real person maybe singing a song like a nursery rhyme or something like that on the screen, she's not able to always distinguish which one is real to her. Um, and she, I think she knows what real means, like real, like her and I sitting in the real mm. world, or she'll mm. ask about real places. Um, we watch, you know, um, one thing that we like to watch on YouTube is um, bakeries that make pastries and little confectioner things because she loves baking with her grandma. She loves ice cream. She loves candies. And so she gets very into like, wow, this is how they're making rainbow um, bagels or like, uh, you know, all these mm -hmm. little pastries and cakes and chocolate. And she's fascinated by that. But then she sees the real people doing it. But because it's on a screen, she's asking me, are those real people? Is that a real, is that bakery a real place? So already she's having 
at least some struggle identifying what is real and what is not. Um, and so that scares me a little bit um, for young people because they're going to have to deal with those types of decisions and uncertainty. Um, so, yeah, that's not something that I dealt with, really. I knew what a cartoon was. I knew yeah. that was. Yeah. But... No, I hear you. I mean, I grew up with um, a lot of this myself. I'm 21. So for me, growing up, I had a TV. I didn't have a cell phone until I was, well, I had an iPod Touch when I was 11. <laughs> I don't know if you remember those. I had an iPod with the wheel, with the spinning wheel. Oh, epic. And I had a Discman. That was most of my formative years, like in middle school. Um, I had a Discman with CDs and things like that. They're coming back, I feel. I was at a, like the biggest flea market in Europe yesterday. And it's really? they're just recycling. I think they're, they're at the 70s right now or the 80s. So I think in 10 years, they'll should be at the 90s. Or I don't know how those trends work, but yeah. I heard this about this, the cycles. But <laughs> But to go back, I mean, yeah, it's wild. I, sometimes I'm in the, I'm in an airplane and I see a little baby and the baby's crying and the parents is like, whoop, iPad. Oh my and gosh. it's like, what are you doing to this child? <laughs> it's, the very prevalent. it's very prevalent. I, I'll tell two little stories again that are a little bit meant to shock us, I think. Um, I think that's actually the purpose of these stories. So it's mm -hmm. not very fun to tell, but... Um, I take my daughter to a class, maybe it's a dance class or a swim class, and there's a little waiting room right in between classes. Kids are coming out, families are waiting to come in. Mm -hmm. And um, I've found myself often in the waiting room of the dance studio, and I am standing in the middle of the room like I do as a weird person, and I'm just looking around, and I see that nobody else is looking up, literally. Mm. I, it's shocking sometimes that no matter the age, everyone is is down on a device and the you know the teenager is on the ground with his coat over his head with a tablet one inch no. away from his face and the toddler the toddler is trying being consoled you know on their mother's knee and the mother's holding a phone in front of their face or the the dad is sitting you know cross-legged and he's doing his scrolling on whatever it is or even during like a swim class when I'm like so focused on my daughter swimming and I'm not saying I'm special and there's other parents that are doing that, but so many parents like in the stands are, are doing their own thing. You know, it's almost like their free time to do their scrolling and whatnot. And maybe there's, maybe there's a reason, maybe they're doing work, maybe they're reading. So I'm not, there's no real judgment there. It's just an observation that people are detaching from what's happening out in front of them and going into the shiny diamond screen. Yeah, and it's attention. I think you you pinpointed it very well when you explained well you, you did it from basics, which I really like. Like you you also go into the perspective of the of the one year old seeing the shiny diamond and seeing the parents do it and being like, okay, the parent does this, so let me do this. And it thinks uh, it reminds me of of Pajot's idea of attention, which is like it's it's such a primal thing. Like we we can speak about what we believe, like on a propositional level, but what we do is more important, especially to a one-year-old because, um, you know, speech is a whole different thing. Mm -hmm. And if you give that example, it's really wild. But it also makes me think of like, okay, so we are actually worshiping our phones in many ways or whatever our phones are supposed to represent. And I, I've heard it before, like I've heard it said, but now that I really visualize it, it's really starting to land that, I mean, the idea of worship 
and why Peugeot thinks it's so Jonathan, why he thinks it's so important that that you go to a church. Because I really had him tell tell me, but I didn't integrate it. But now I really see it because it's also something you mimic as a child, and at the same time, it feeds back into your reality and what you deem important in action. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and all I can say also is that um, just put put myself out there and say like this is something that I personally struggle with too which is feeling this sort of, and now a sort of a guilt about my use of my own device, right? And it is something that I struggle with personally, whether my amount of hours or appropriate or abusive use matches up with anyone else, I have no idea, but it's something that I sort of think about. It's like, wow, I sort of, I go on YouTube more than I want, you know, like Mm. why don't I get caught up with my earphones in listening to all of these things and writing comments and and all of that, and it's a detachment um, from the real. Here's, can I tell my other little visual for you to scare Please do. You? Please do. Okay. Um, an- another part of this story is something that I've gone through in my past. Um, and maybe it's, so have you ever thought about the struggle of doing art or taking photos? Yep. Okay, so there. I think at the end of this, we arrive at that place, but um it's like a detachment from the reality it's a detachment from the lived experience um so the other visual that i have to scare us all is this you know cristiano ronaldo of course of course so recently he you know made a massive uh change and went Mm -hmm. to the Saudi arabian Mm -hmm. soccer league so that happened what maybe a few months ago now i can't remember yeah something like it I feel like, yeah. Let's just say it was a few months ago. Um, So a few months ago, uh, right after this happened, a video popped up in my YouTube feed for Cristiano's, like one of his first games. And it says like, Cristiano scores a penalty to win the game or something like that, right? And so I'm like, I got to see this. I got to see the highlights of Cristiano in this new league with this new team and whatever. And um the broadcast is all, uh, you know, professionally presented and everything, um, just like you see in Premier League or Dutch League or um, anything like that, La Liga, Bundesliga. And so they show Cristiano coming up to take his penalty. He's lining it up. He scores. He runs to the corner. He does his amazing, you know, celebration. The crowd is <laughs> going crazy. Um, and then they go back to the replay, right? And they show in slow motion, Cristiano's face getting ready. He runs up. This is the most tense moment, right? The biggest soccer player in the world taking a penalty, a special moment in soccer where sort of like the game stops for once, you know, and like there's one thing that happens. Um, so the reason that I'm building this up is like, this is in recent time, one of probably the, such a heightened moment in soccer, Cristiano penalty kick in a new league with a new team. Then they show in the replay a slow motion image of the crowd behind the goal. Oh no. And in the stands in framed up on the TV broadcast is maybe a hundred people. I had to pause the video to check myself. Every single person in the frame, every single person was looking through their cell phone. And you can imagine that in most of the stadium, maybe this was happening. 
So my point is, what do we value? Do you value the experience of watching Cristiano Ronaldo take the penalty kick? And even think about these Saudi Arabian fans. Like it must've been so special to have Cristiano on their team and like, oh, Cristiano's going to take our penalty, but I'm not going to watch. I would rather record it on my cell phone. So that what? What do, So that you share it on your social media, so that you go back and you look at it again later, so that you can send it to family or friends. It's somehow we've lost sight of the enjoyment of watching the thing happen. That is scary. Mm. That even in the most heightened moments, we will choose to go through our little tiny shiny screen um, and miss out, frankly, completely miss out on something that we will never get to see again. You will never actually look at Cristiano taking that penalty kick in his first game for the Saudi Arabian team. You'll yeah. never get that. You missed it. And we're willing to do that more and more. Um, I scare myself when I do that with my own children, when I want to take a picture of the cute thing that they're doing, or I want to document the amazing first steps or the whatever, and even just in a good hearted way to share it with my wife or share it with my family members, my brothers and sisters or my parents. Um, but the fact that we have that available, it also makes available the opportunity for us to detach. And it's just, it's a little bit alarming to me that we do that. So, so easily yeah. with so little resistance in a reflexive sort of way. No, absolutely. And I've seen this example many times of parents with kids in parks, you know, it's, it's kind of dystopic, but I feel I really do see at the same time a counter movement, which is quite encouraging mm. of people either stepping away from it completely or finding a balanced way to do it. Or because it's really true that we're just getting this thing. Like it's like when people were just exposed to cocaine, I can imagine. I mean, everyone's on cocaine. I remember watching Narcos, uh, Narcos and, um, you just see like everyone at the party is doing okay because they don't know what it is. Like they're just trying it. And I mean, phones working on a dopaminergic level are basically like that, I feel, if not worse, um, especially for children. And I think, yeah, you're getting to know the territory and then maybe in a generation, the culture will start to adjust as to how to deal with these things because they're so strong in potential, you know, and it's like, oh, so yeah. You're so right about the potential too. And I also agree in my, in my hopeful side, I, I am hopeful that we will, we will sort of swing back from the extrema that I think we're sort of either approaching right now, or as you said, some people are starting to sort of recognize, whoa, we need to swing back a little bit. Yeah. But um, the potential is also so difficult because again, we said this before, we're able to do this here we are at our screens, right? And and we're not the first to recognize this. It's like the potential is so powerful. It's like our technology is allowing us to attempt to cultivate wisdom more than we ever could mm. in a certain way. I mm. still wonder if this is a little trick for ourselves that all of us that are doing this are gonna end up in some dead end um, or that if it's not balanced, with some of the traditional sort of wisdom seeking then oh i think for sure if it's not balanced with sort of traditional wisdom seeking um 
that this will it will be lacking in some way or it can lead to sort of abuse right if yeah because um yeah again this is we we still i think rely on some of those more ancient systems even just in the way that our body reacts right the state of my body is different when that when i'm in a zoom meeting than when i'm uh sitting quietly outside with a pen and paper right it's just it's a difference it's a different way of being and so yeah we have to try to navigate using this technology well and not forgetting or losing out on um the more ancient ways mm. i i've often thought here's a really not humble thought that i've had am i smarter than plato I think that I think that to myself sometimes. Are you? Well, I try to think about that and I say, hmm. Well, I have access, I have the privilege of all of Plato's works and all of the analysis of Plato's works and all of the extension and synthesis of thinkers after that. Right. And I'm able to take in all of that knowledge that. I guess Plato wasn't, uh, didn't have access to. And so in that sense, like, am I, am I beyond where Plato was that that's the one side, the non-humble side. And yeah. I think that can be justified just in terms of, if you want to put it in terms of like information, right. That we know so much more information than Plato did. Mm -hmm. It seems that way. Right. So on one hand, I want to agree with that, but then I immediately try to, throw myself out of the way and say, but all of that extra information that I feel like I'm accumulating sort of in the context of ideas and evolution of philosophy, where I feel like I'm beyond Plato, I must be, I know what Plato knew and more, right? That's one way that it feels. And then I say, but wait, what have you missed out on? The lack of having that information is also an opportunity for different information that now I don't have access to. For example, here's a very simple one. When I use the term light, this is from uh, Matteo Peugeot. When I use the concept of light, I cannot help but think of light bulbs and fluorescent light bulbs and electricity. And maybe my knowledge about light goes even deeper to photons and where we are in relation to the sun and how electronic circuits work and uh, Ohm's law and right. I can't remove all of those extra layers of context. And because of that, does that sort of obfuscate a concept of light that you can only get if you aren't sort of jaded or, or shaded by all of those extra layers of light on top? right? Yeah. Where light in the Bible, they didn't care about photons, right? Yeah. There was no quantum physics necessary to use light in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if, if I don't have access to that. And so in that sense, maybe I can't be, you know, as intelligent or as smart or wise as Plato, um, because I'm sort of already biased by my yeah. modern concepts um 
I think we're talking about intelligence and wisdom. I think if we're talking about IQ intelligence, I think there are not a lot of people that are coming close to Plato. At least I've heard Trevaki say that he thinks that people estimate Plato's IQ to be like beyond anyone recorded in modern history. <laughs> I wonder how they do that. I wonder what kind of thought processes they go yeah, through. Yeah, I thought so as well. Like, I'm not sure how you would even begin. But it um, doesn't seem wrong to me, though. I mean, I no, I, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, and wisdom. I mean, there's no way in which I think amount of information seems to correlate or cause wisdom. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. So that's why I would never even think I would come close to Plato. But in terms of information and things we know or we can know. Yes. But then at the same time, I think like because of my phone, I've become much lazier with remembering things like I've decided to store them on my little phone. And then I look at my notes and I'm like, I don't remember this. I don't remember that. And it's like, OK, so maybe I know something, but actually my phone does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just exported my information somewhere else to my second brain. Oh, definitely. Discernment, right? It's like you lose. And nowadays we sort of lose even to a certain extent our ability to trust um, the digital information that we mm. encounter. It yeah. becomes more, more difficult to sort of verify. Uh, verify exactly. Exact, exactly. And who's going to be the verifier? That's the question I hear all the time. It's like, okay, now the government's going to tell us which is real, which is not. Yeah. <laughs> Or someone else. I think we're reaching some limit for ourselves. And again, even just in the results of like, are people happier and healthier with all of this extra information and knowledge and technology? I, it's to me, it's an open question of, um, and maybe it's just a personal thing that you have to try to navigate again. It's like, what is appropriate for you? Yeah. What is, I think it's, yeah, go ahead. That's all. Okay. I think it's two, two, I'd look at two sides of it because on the one hand you have like the, the person who is really consciously um, navigating this world and picking the information that they want. Like they're reading Plato on their phone and you know, that's the exception, <laughs> absolute exception. And if the majority of people will get bombarded with news, just so much more news than they would ever get if they were growing up in like some, some village 500 years ago. And the, the amount of negative alarming things that they, that they get into their system is just crazy. So in that sense, I think we get generally people get way too much information. Yeah, exactly. And not always the good kind, right? Like we talked no. about this sort of the egregores or the demons last time of the medias. Um, yeah media that we that we absorb and that we encounter yeah very true it's um it's such a double-edged sword and uh yeah it's so how do we how do you wield that that sword sort <laughs> of responsibly is wow it's such a challenging um practice in today's world again which we don't have a lot of context for we don't have like Plato and Aristotle weren't giving us any advice about how to deal with our addictions to smartphone media. <laughs> you know, no, like, but they gave us virtues in a sense, it, or at least they helped us cultivate them. Yeah. So, you know? right. And do you think that um, trying to um, twist those or at least the sort of the meta idea of virtues in general is uh, something that people would uh, benefit from in what do you mean world. twist 
Well, I sort of mean apply. Okay. I sort of mean like yeah. spin, spin a little bit to the modern predicament. No, That's for sure. I mean. For sure. I mean, I, I, the way I look at something like wisdom is that it applies to all situations. So even if, if they were speaking about being wise back in the day, of course, I think it can be applicable. The word that comes to mind is sophisant. I think Fraviki spoke about it, something to do with temperance, for example. I think you could definitely apply it to the digital age. I think the question goes, though, um, like you need to have food in your body. Do you need to have much of the technology at all? Like, do you need to be temperate with it? Or do you need to just banish it all up? Because I had a time of life where I would just like, I deleted all my social media and it was quite a cleansing thing. But then the... Just the demands of working anywhere in my country or going to school. It's just you need a smartphone. Even just going to the store nowadays for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's embedded in our existence. Like I said, it's like, what job can you have today without an email address associated with it? Yeah. Right? It's like, you can't survive without an email address. That's unusual. That's, That's unusual. unusual human being. It's like, in order to keep my family safe and secure, I need an email address. Yeah. And, and that's a little bit strange. Um so <laughs> i'll tell you a story about my friend she got a flip phone <laughs> just in the middle of the school year like oh you got a flip phone like i, I was like okay that's gonna last you a week and two two weeks later she was back to her iphone because like, you can't do it just you can't do it i know yeah but you can yeah. live yeah go ahead no no go for it you can live in a way that's completely detached but it's just like it's funny actually how much i speak about this with friends of mine because I think a lot of people are starting to have it in the back of their heads. Like, okay, but could always live on the farm in Peru. <laughs> it's like, it's not, it's not for a lot of people, but it's, uh, it's something people are now longing for. That's their escapism in many ways. It's, um, well, there are two sides to this. In one way, I want to warn those people that it, it can be ill-advised to sort of fantasize that mm. um, because there's a really harsh reality to how, well, how far you want to go to like live off the land or live yeah. off the grid or, or whatever. Um, and depending on what goals you have in your life. Um, I mean, there's a reason that most cultures have gone past that, right? Exactly. We are, we are exactly. A, we are where we are because people over the years have wanted to go beyond that. So mm. when we assume that like we want to go back, it's like, why didn't the people back then want to, you know, obviously they were longing for something more, something more mm. advanced. Um, but yeah, maybe again, we've swung a little bit too far. Um, yeah, it's, it's something I think about too. And also, as you know, a little bit of my story, I've attempted, um, I've attempted to like go that way. And so I do have some like direct experience of like, again, trying to live without, um technologies and modernity and things like that and um yeah in one sense i found it difficult even for a sort of single young um free person mm. right um yeah. and most people just aren't in that position you have like a, a short window of time i think in your life generally where you're old enough to do things on your own but you haven't reached a place where you have other you know you don't have a family or children or yeah. things like where you can't just like decide to buy a one-way ticket to go live on the island 
um right like you you just you lose that chance if you're if you're being responsible but mm-hmm. um it, there there can be big payoffs yeah sure but I'll, I'll repeat what i said last episode though and that in many ways i i find it very special the digital age and i think a lot of what i'm seeing is that short term it's just going into a pretty bad direction but yeah. the, the, the promise of these t- technologies have always been in many ways liberating and that's why i think a lot about uh, these topics like bitcoin and decentralized technologies like i feel in many ways blessed with them because they allow for more opportunities and sort of um leveling the playing field in many ways because i feel if you really want to learn something nowadays like you, you said it before like you can learn so quickly and almost completely for your cost like most books you can find online so in that sense it's it's quite beautiful as well but it's learning how to deal with it and then learning to harness it in a in a, and that's that's where i think the wisdom comes in and i do think it's applicable to go back to your question so yeah yeah most definitely um yeah i wonder who you know i wonder if there's like good models out there you know i wish for me it's like i want to see somebody who manages that well i want to see what their family is up to yeah and sort of like practices you know verbeke is big on just like create a practice for something whatever whatever it is right create a little bit of community that the logo practice like how do i how do i practice that in my life who who can give me advice on that who can show me the way of like yeah it's um so i don't know maybe it's you (laughs) but i think we will see like emerging communities like this i think we really will i think that that people will be more and more longing for well i already see it actually people longing for communities My, my girlfriend's really into like watching vlogs of people and she follows a lot of young people that are walking this this middle path like a couple living in the u.s and having their like like little chickens and little farm but not completely swearing off modernity and making a living off <clears throat> off of um content creation and working with the digital things so that that gives them some freedom but at the same time they really want to be connected and i hear people really wanting community and realizing that life is not all about them Um, which is something i think you went through as well and i went through so so yeah i think we, we we can start to to go back to to our humanity and things that are really foundational to it and they're they're within and we can maybe let them unfold well that's great maybe um and i think this feels to me like a natural i really like this positive ending of like hey we can we can try to create uh practices Mm -hmm. to uh utilize our technology and our modernity so i will think about that more um because i have to go here in just a few minutes yeah but I wonder if we can think of, you know, offline, if we can think of some actual practical things, you know, a yeah, lot of sure. a lot of books um, sort of make these suggestions for practices somewhere like at the end of the book, you know, it's mm. like, how do you apply this to your real life or like go through this exercise, right? Or like, you know, Peterson's self-authoring thing. It's like, ask yourself these questions, write down the answers, um, you know, or maybe fill in this chart, you know, identify goals and things you know just going through a sort of 
um, a learning process to try to materialize or formalize some of these things in our lives. Maybe we can come up with a few good ideas. Um, So that would be really interesting. I think we will. And I'm glad to see also the the guys move into this direction, the people in the in this little corner of thinking about AI and all these things. It's like, okay, we're in this Kairos, <laughs> as Rafiki would put it so well. And it's like, we got to put some wisdom into this thing because this machine is going somewhere right now and I don't like the direction. So we do have some agency and I'm excited to... Agreed. To, yeah, help it. <laughs> Right. My final, my final comment. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to jump off. I, we got to talk again. Obviously, I, think we, um, I was thinking about this, like this little corner thing, mm. and uh, from just like a, like I still consider myself like a rando, you know. Like when I, I think when I reached out to Karen originally, I'm like, hey, I'm probably another rando person just reaching out to you. Um, where you know, I don't feel like I have a position like in the this little corner. Those people seem like, you know, off in the distance or like they're on the board of directors, you yeah. know, or Vicky Vanderclay, Grim Griswold. I don't know if you know Grim Griswold. No. Uh, um, <laughs> or uh the Sunday, what is it? The Sunday nameless. I can't remember. There's some of these other like sort of orbiters of well, I don't want to say it in a pejorative way, but like orbiters of Vanderclay and Peugeot and things like that um and uh you know I just don't like personally feel like I'm a part of that quite yet you know and I was thinking about like do I actually do I fit in or I kind of no 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 here's actually (laughs) it's a little bit better it's a little bit better I feel like in terms of this little corner I feel like I'm I'm in that little corner oh because (laughs) I'm in this other corner over here where I'm looking at all of the things going on in this little Mm. corner, right? I still feel like a little bit of an outsider, which is okay. I'm like, I love to talk. I would talk to anybody in this little corner, but um, yeah, I still feel like I have a slightly different perspective and maybe just like my, um, my preferences and my interests are slightly like orthogonal to this little corner, but there's so there's so much crossover. And so like building bridges is something that I'm interested in. And so I wonder if just like, yeah, like maybe like some people might take up another little corner over here, that little corner over there. And, uh, you know, then the corners can start, uh, coming together. And there's a little fence between the corners and you're just jumping over the fence, <laughs> crawling. Or are we going to fold it? Right. We'll, we'll oh, yes. Together by folding it. And That's awesome. Fold and see the crease patterns. Um, from our enfolding and unfolding. <laughs> That's great, Scott. I don't want to steal you any longer. Please uh, apologize to your children, <laughs> your wife. Uh, yeah, it's been great. I, I really want to talk again. Of course, we'll uh, we'll fix it up offline. Yeah, we'll send we'll send a bunch of notes and then we'll talk about one or two of them. Oh no, yeah, like I think we'll do one note per <laughs> episode. But I'll get started on the books. I've got four to hey. go, so uh, we'll take a while. Yeah, but, check, uh, out the, check out the Enneagram. I would be really interested. Is to that see. the first one you want me to check out? I, I think so. It could be, it could just be, it's really fun. It can okay. be really fun and really deep. So um, I would love to just like hear what you have to think about it. Definitely. I'll let and you, you know. Don't have to, again, you don't have to force it where you're like, oh, Scott thinks this is going to be really deep. You know, it's like when you tell somebody this is the best movie ever, you know, and then it's for them, it's not. <laughs> yeah, so, it will just be what it is. Or if you want to critique it, if you want to say, eh, I'm not so sure about this, I would love that um, because 
yeah, it's not perfect. It's not everything, but it seems it rings true in a lot of ways. So yeah. I'll let you know, you can, uh, you can let me know your availability and we'll just uh, set up the next one. All right. Awesome. All right. Have a nice rest of your Sunday. Great to talk to you again. See you, Scott. Great to talk to you too.